Okay, good morning to all of you, Brandon, and it's good to see all of us again, and uh, how time flies, isn't it? Uh, it's a week now, and uh, it's, it's so good to be back again with you and uh, amongst brethren on Sunday. And I, I hope that uh, you have had a good week, and uh, may God bless us all today as we as we meet together to uh, to strive to worship Him and, and to learn from His Word. So, okay, I'm going to continue today with our study, uh, uh, taking back, going back to the book of Kings again, that... Uh, and but this time round, we're going to look at uh, the the life of Elisha. But before that, let's recap what we have seen so far uh, concerning uh, the reign of King Jehoash, the son of Jehoahaz, uh, who was the son of Jehu, king of Israel. So we have been looking at the kings of Israel uh, in, in our previous sermons before. If you remember, basically, that uh, from our last sermon, as we look at uh, King Jehoash of Israel, that uh, the the writer of the kings actually also re- mentioned that. Uh, Elisha was coming towards the end of his life. Elisha, the prophet himself, and that uh, that from from that account itself, we we, we can see basically that uh, Elisha seemed to have fostered this very close, friendly relationship with King Jehoash. Uh, you know, and, and for for, uh, for for very interesting reasons, basically that perhaps that Jehoash, uh, he although that he was evil and wicked, but that uh, he was not as bad as his fathers, uh, who who were not very close to the prophet. So. And, and and since since the the, the writer has actually included the the, the the closing days of the great prophet Jeho- uh, Elisha for us, I thought that maybe we we should uh, basically look at uh, this this uh, this account of Elisha's final days and and draw some lessons from it uh, for our benefit today. So let let's let's concentrate today uh, on on the the final days of uh, of uh, of the, the great prophet Elisha. So. As as we as we have seen from our previous uh, sermons before, that if you you may you call, but I I don't expect you to remember, but you may recall basically that uh, from Second Kings nine, uh, the the writer's last mention of the prophet Elisha was actually in Second Kings nine. Uh, this was the time when the writer mentioned that uh, you know that Elisha sent one of the sons of the prophets uh, to Jehu, uh, and anointed him uh, in secret to be the next king of Israel. So that that was the last mention of Elisha's, uh, you know, work uh, in in the Book of Kings. Now, about forty five years later, so Elisha suddenly reappeared again, uh, you know, uh, on the pages of sacred history, uh, with 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 the writer of the Kings uh, referring to his final days and his death, and something that happened after his death as well. So I thought that is is worth uh, is worth looking at uh, this in this events and learn something out of it. But before we look at Elisha's final days and death, let's summarize his ministry, as we have seen from our past sermons before. Uh, that look at his, let's look at his works. You know that, that that made him such a great prophet. Elisha is, a, is quite a unique prophet in a sense that he has got quite a number of recorded miracles, uh, that that's that's uh, well known in the Bible itself. So in Second Kings two verses thirteen to fourteen, that. This was the first time that we see Elisha performing uh, great signs. If you remember that after Elijah went up uh, to to heaven in in the chariot of fire and the whirlwind, that Elisha picked up uh, Elijah's mantle, this piece of like like a you know a overall body uh, cover. And he took the mantle and that he he struck the the waters of the river Jordan and which parted the waters of the river Jordan in order for him to actually to cross over. Uh, you know, as on dry land itself, thus identifying him as Elijah's successor. So that was the first time that he he performed a, a miracle in 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 public uh, in public sight. 
Then there was uh, in Second mm. Kings four verses one to seven as well. We we read of how that uh, Elisha actually has miraculously increased a weed a poor widow's oil supply, you know, so that she could actually survive and sell oil to make a living. Uh, oil. I'm not talking about crude oil from the ground, but rather that those were olive oil, basically used for uh, perhaps cooking and for for lighting purposes. So uh, Elisha miraculously actually multiplied uh, this uh, widow's uh, oil supply in the house so that uh, she could uh, use them for cooking as well as to sell them and make a living out of that. And in 2 Kings 4 verses 8 to 37 as well, we've seen another miracle by Elisha where he actually miraculously helped a Shunammite woman to conceive a son. Uh, if you remember that this Shunammite woman was very uh, hospitable and generous towards Elisha as whenever Elisha you know, went, came past her, her, her town, that uh, she would accommodate and house and supply Elisha's needs because she knew that uh, he was a prophet and as a result that uh, Elisha reciprocated by by helping her conceive a son and later on in fact if you remember that the son died and Elisha came and and raised him from the dead as well so uh, these these were some uh, very interesting miracles that Elisha has done Second Kings 4 again at 38 to verse 40 also recorded another miracle where Elisha actually fed the sons of the prophets. If you remember that there was this, they were cooking this uh, pot for a meal. Remember that if one of the sons of the prophets that we were realizing that he actually cut in some uh, bitter, uh, bitter herbs uh, which were actually toxic and poisonous uh, in, in the pot. And so, and when they realized that it was toxic and poisonous, Elisha actually, you know, turned this pot of, a uh, big pot of toxic, uh, Food into harmless food so that the the the, the prophets could eat it. So uh, you know that task saving their lives. And again, the Second Kings four forty one to forty four also recorded another miracle where Elisha actually fed one hundred men with twenty loaves and some corn, uh, which was supplied by a, by by someone who came over uh, with, with 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 this uh, his 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 givings or his contribution to the to the school of the prophets. And the other famous story that we know from Second Kings five verses one to fourteen was the healing of Naaman, the Syrian captain of his leprosy. So we, we know that, that story that is, is, a, is a very well-known story that, uh, that a lot of people know about this story. And also that you know, 2 Kings 6 verses 1 to 7, we find uh, Elisha actually had also miraculously uh, you know, caused uh, an, an iron axe head to float in water. So which is very interesting that it defies the laws of physics, isn't it? Uh, you know, we know that iron do not float in water, that, uh, but uh, Elisha made it made it float in water, so that uh, this poor son of the prophet uh, uh, would actually uh, you know retrieve his lost uh, axe head from the from the from the river Jordan. Uh, again, that in Second uh, Kings six verses eight to twenty three, again we we see another another amazing miracle where Elisha actually had uh, captured the entire Syrian army that was raiding Israel. By blinding all these men, remember that he he led these blind men into the in right into the city of Samaria, uh, before regaining their sight for them, and and you know that uh, the the king of Israel wanted to 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 massacre and kill all these soldiers who were enemies of Israel, but uh, Elisha said no, you you treat them well as guests and supply their needs and send them off, and that actually resulted in 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 some form of reprieve in terms of the Syrian incursions into Israel. So and the, that one 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 of the other final miracles we've seen basically that was recorded is in Second Kings seven, uh, verses one to twenty, where you know Elisha prophesied uh, concerning the end of the Syrian siege of Samaria, uh, you know so that was another interesting story we have seen as well. 
So from all this, all, all this uh, recorded uh, miracles of Elisha and his work as a prophet, actually shows Elisha to, to be actually quite a low key character. There, he, he apart from two of his public profile miracles, uh, you know that, uh, that that that's been done in in full public view, uh, but Elisha has always been a very low key private, uh, you know, person as 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 a prophet was as far as his work of prof as a prophet was concerned. Uh, although that he was low key, he was very well known even amongst the royal circles. Uh, that the kings uh, and the royal household knew him and knew who he was. Uh, not only in the in the high the the high higher the the hierarchy the higher up hierarchies of the of society that that knew him to be a prophet. Even those on on, on the ground, like the Israelite girl, if you remember this Israelite girl was the one who was captured as a slave in the house of Naaman. Uh, who was the leper? And she was, she knew about Elisha, uh, and Elisha's uh, you know uh, power to heal, and she was the one who actually tipped off uh, you know uh, Naaman as to where he could go for his the healing of his leprosy. So this this shows basically that uh, you know that Elisha has this very outstanding track record of faithful ministry, uh, you know, of the Lord God of Israel, uh, in a very deeply paganistic society of, of Israel. And this itself is a testimony of his faith and service to God. So, you know, with this in mind, so let us uh, read the text of this morning and consider the final days of this, uh, you know, of this uh, spiritual giant and humble servant of God, which I think that is, is worth our attention there. Second uh, Kings 13, that's the, if you turn your Bibles to Second Kings 13, verses 14 down to 18, it's a text we have, we have actually considered in our previous sermon on King Jehoash of Israel. But anyway, it's worth just revisiting it briefly. 2 Kings 13 verse 14 says this, Elisha became sick with the illness of which he would die. Then Joash the king of Israel came down to him and wept over his face and said, O my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and their horsemen. And Elisha said to him, Take a bow and some arrows. So he took himself a bow and some arrows. Then he said to the king of Israel, Put your hand on the bow. So he put his hand on it. And Elisha put his hand on the king's hand, and he said, Open the east window, and he opened it. Then Elisha said, Shoot, and he shot. And he said, The arrow of the Lord's deliverance, and the arrow of deliverance from Syria. For you must strike the Syrians at Aphek until you have destroyed them. Then he said, Take the arrows. So he took them, and he said to the king, Strike the ground. So he struck three times and stopped. Uh, you know, the, we, we, when we consider Elisha's conversation with King Jehoash of Israel here, that uh, Elisha was, the, that's, that's bear in mind, that Elisha was actually lying on his deathbed. Uh, it's amazing that, you know, that when someone was on his deathbed would be, would be talking about <laughs> shooting arrows here. And it just shows basically that, uh, that Elisha, how Elisha viewed his ministry as God's servant there. That he, he, you know, that his deathbed would not actually prevent him from serving God. Because that Elisha seems to see that his service to God as a prophet and servant was a lifelong uh, vocation and calling, that even when he was facing death on his bed, he would never miss the opportunity to serve God. And it, it shows us whether you can see that how Elisha was so concerned about Israel's continued oppression by the Syrians. We have seen in our previous sermon before, you know, that the Syrians have been oppressing Israel so badly that and Elisha was so concerned that even on his deathbed, he wanted to do something that to help. Israel, you know, emerged from this affliction uh, for so many years. 
So and hence we find that he he commanded Jehoash king of Israel to shoot as many arrows out of the window uh, as, as he could with the hope that the king would one day destroy the Syrians and free his people from this terrible oppression. Uh, sadly, of course, that the you know Jehoash uh, was either, either too lazy or unbelieving of Elisha's words to empty the quivers of arrows that he had with him. So when Elisha realized that the king had no heart in trusting in the Lord's promises, uh, the promise of freeing his people from oppression, and the writer continues to tell us in Second Kings thirteen verse verses nineteen to twenty. This is what the, the writer of the Kings said. And the man of God was angry with him and said, You should have struck five or six times, then you would have struck Israel till you have destroyed it. But now you will strike Syria only three times. Then Elisha died and they buried him. So Elisha was, as you can see, was very heartbroken. He was very frustrated and angry with this king. And you know where he said that, well, you could have done more than what I told you to do and hence destroyed the Syrians. And, it, and their oppression of Israel, but now you can only defeat them three times, and then you know with these with these uh, words, a deeply broken-hearted Elisha passed from this world. So let's continue with the text again uh, in Second Kings thirteen verses tw- verses twenty and twenty-one. The scripture says this: Then Elisha died, and they buried him, and the raiding bands of Moab invaded the land in the spring of the year. So it was as they were burying a man, that suddenly they spied a band of raiders, and they put the man in the tomb of Elisha. And when the man was let down and touched the bones of Elisha, he revived, he revived and stood on his feet. So now the writer tells us that, you know, sometime after Elisha's death, uh, you know, that there, there were a couple of men, perhaps the undertakers basically, uh, you know, who was going about to bury this, uh, this, this uh, uh, a man who has died. Uh, that was that took place in the spring of the year as we know that spring of the year was usually the time when uh, you know that uh, the enemies would basically uh, you know either invade another 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 nation or that they would they would raid uh, the the nations uh, with small band of, of soldiers uh, causing just minimal damage but uh, you know irritation for 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 the country basically so uh, this this was what happened there. That while some men of them were burying a, a, a dead man, they spotted these Moabites, Moabite raiders, coming into the, the the territories of Israel. So of course that these undertakers would basically be fearful of their lives because that these were armed raiders. So uh, in their panic, so they they quickly dropped this dead body into Elisha's tomb, and then started to run for their lives. Or maybe perhaps that they went and and went hide somewhere to to, to prevent detection. But it seems basically that uh, thankfully that uh, these raiders were not really interested in a couple of undertakers, so they, they just left them alone and carried on uh, in, 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 their, in their raiding motives. And then of course this man returned after the, after the raiders had gone and trying to retrieve the dead body from the tomb. <laughs> but then of course when they, we, we know that when they, when they got there, they found that the man was alive uh, after having touched Elisha's bones. So you know this this must have been quite a shocking experience for these undertakers. You know, imagine that you 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 know that somebody is dead. You 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 gone and buried him, and suddenly he became alive again. So that that news of the the, the raising of this dead man, uh, you know, who has who have touched Elijah's bones, uh, must have caused a kind of like a shocking wave of news, uh, in Israel again, that uh, you know that 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 would have 
basically awed a lot of people that wow even Elisha when he, after he was dead you know he's dead that he's still able to perform miracles with his bones you know that this must have been quite an amazing story to end with basically that that was that's the end basically the end of, of uh, the account of uh, the the great prophet Elisha so what can we learn from this uh, so it's very quick isn't it uh, I'm only into uh, how many minutes of my lesson is only about 15 minutes of, the, of, my, of, of what I've said so far and now we are into the lesson itself. What, what can we learn? Uh, having read this passage, uh, you know, which forms our text today, that I, I was actually left wondering why the king's account has actually inserted uh, Elisha's posthumous miracle. Posthumous means after his death. A posthumous miracle at his tomb and, you know, and also the account of his, of his final attempt to help King Jehoash with the shooting of the arrows. Well, I, I guess that the, the, the writer may have done this in order to draw a comparison between King Jehoash of Israel and Elisha. I, I see that the comparison by the writer uh, here is that of a king whose life was an abject failure. We know that Jehoash's life was an abject failure uh, because that he had actually not drawn, he had not drawn upon the full potential of God's grace towards him. You remember that how he squandered away his precious relationship with Elisha and how he squandered away his God-given opportunity to destroy the Syrians. And also hence that he squandered away his life. He just wasted his life. He was a life that was uh, such a waste, uh, you know, a, a man who, who lived a life in, in, in such a manner. So that was the king of jo uh, King Jehoash of Israel. And in contrast, Elisha, on the other hand, he was a man who had in his lifetime cherished the special relationship that he had with Elijah, his mentor. Remember how he followed Elijah all his life. And that the, Elisha was a man who had utilized God's opportunity to their full capacity and potential, you know, to learn and to do God's will. Even though that he was working amongst a rebellious people like the nation of Israel. But he did not just simply stop there in his life. Even on his deathbed, as we have seen in our text today, it, Elijah did not let an opportunity to serve the Lord and to help Israel, God's people, slip by, you know, before he passed from this world. And that's why that the, the, I think that the writer recorded the story of Elijah's command to the king to shoot the arrows of deliverance from the Syrian oppression there. So our first lesson to learn from Elijah's life of service of a faithful servant uh, of God is this, I think. Elijah's view of his service to the Lord uh, was not to... That, uh, to retire and stop serving God at a certain age. You know, like today we have a retirement age. People stop working uh, because they feel that they are old enough and they have retired. So instead that we find that Elisha kept going and he has been using every opportunity, including his own deathbed, where he would refuse to relent but to serve the Lord. Uh, we find, in fact, that we find in the Bible, this is how uh, every faithful servant of God viewed their service to God. Every, every faithful servant of, of God saw their, their service as a lifelong faithful service right to the end. There was no retirement age uh, as far as spiritual service was concerned. We, we, we can see from the Bible great men like Moses, Joshua, prophets like Elijah, Jeremiah, and so, and, and, and so forth and others. You know, that all these great men have served the Lord faithfully right to the end of their lives. Even in the New Testament, we, we, we find the, the, the example of the great Apostle Paul. Uh, the great Apostle Paul was no different. Uh, in, in, when he wrote uh, in Second Timothy 4, which was basically the closing words uh, of, his, of, his, uh, of his letter, 
before he was executed by Emperor Nero. Second uh, Timothy four verse six to verses six to eight, where Paul said this: For I am ready being, I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous Judge, will give me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved His appearing. So within this short uh, letter of four chapters in Second Timothy, Paul, if you read this letter that you, you, will, you, will, you, will, you will notice, basically that Paul had a lot of things to say to Timothy about the work of the church, his concerns about the welfare of the church, and about Timothy's ministry, and how that Paul encouraged Timothy in their faith. You know, even, even when Paul was uh, about time for him to depart from this world to face the execution, Paul, you know, that... Uh, did not basically see that okay well after all i'm going to be dead very shortly by execution so uh i've done my job uh, you guys just carry on you know he didn't do that he, he continued writing to timothy paul did not basically let his pending departure from this world hinder his hinder his service to god you know that uh, he, he 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 saw his 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 ministry his life as a lifelong service to god that he would serve god right to the very end but the other apostle with the Elisha spirit of lifelong service is the Apostle Peter. That we see the same trend and that same pattern there in Second Peter 1 uh, verses 12 to 15. Where Peter, again, that this was Peter's final letter before he was crucified upside down, basically as according to church, early church tradition, uh, you know, uh, and, 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 and died in, in that manner. So Second Peter 1 12 said this, For this reason, I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things. Though you know and are established in the present truth, yes, I think it right, as long as I am in this tent, to stir you up by reminding you, knowing that surely I must put off my tent, just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. Moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. So here we find P Peter doing the same thing. He said that, well, as long as I'm in this tent, and that means that as long as I'm alive, I'm going to keep on stirring you by reminding you. In other words, you can say, I'm going to keep on nagging you as long as I'm alive to, uh, of the present truth until I'm dead. But even I'm dead, I hope that Bishop Peter was saying that, I hope that you will remember these things after I'm dead. So amazing that we see, we see that, you know, that uh, how Paul, Peter, like Elijah and the great men of God, you know, uh, in, in, in the Bible, that uh, they, they have seen their lives as a lifeline, lifetime service to God rather than retiring at a certain age. There was also an early church tradition, basically not in the Bible, but the early church tradition about the Apostle John, uh, the Apostle of Love, as we know. Uh, you know that that, that basically the, the early church tradition actually said that uh, when John was very very old and physically very frail, that he could not actually stand and walk, he he actually asked the brethren to carry him, uh, in in perhaps in a, in a stretcher or whatever it is, or you know in, into the assembly of the saints, into into the church to meet with the saints. And also the tradition is to say basically that uh, because of his health, so and age, uh, he was not able to deliver long sermons. You know, like me basically that I'm long-winded basically that I, you know, my sermons are pretty long. So John was very old, so he couldn't do that. So, but he had a custom. He had this custom that he would go to the assembly of the saints where he he said to them, "My dear children, love one another." So that was that that was simply what the apostle John said to the brethren 
my dear children love one another you know and these words became his 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 legacy that even until today that uh, you know we 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 are able to to, to see uh you know that we are not we're not only able to see the the gospel account of john which is which is an account of the of the great expression of god's love for us we we have we we can also see from the traditions of the church of this great apostle who continued to serve god right to the very end with those words on his lips my dearly beloved children love one another but no, it's not it was just not the apostles who have been like that why did the apostles uh, behave as such where they saw themselves as lifelong servants of God. This is because of the great example of Jesus, the Son of God himself. Jesus showed the same example where he would serve God right to the very end. If you remember, that even when he was hung on the cross, in his dying moments, you know, he continued to display that great example of humility, of submission and service to God in fulfilling the prophecies you know, of his work in God. That, he, that 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 Jesus 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 ne- never never relent even he was on a cross he continued to do what God has bid him to do uh, until he said with his the final words on his lips that it is finished before he he gave up the spirit so from all these examples we we see that uh, you know that uh, great servants of God has always seen their lives and service as a lifelong thing uh, there was no such thing as retirement. Uh, for them, they would serve till they are dead. As, as I think something that is worthy for us to learn today as, as servants of God. So going back to Elisha now. So the Bible tells us in, in, the, in the closing words of the account on Elisha that even when Eli, even Elisha's bones in his tomb was capable of performing miracles by raising this man from the dead. But where is the, con- where is the comparison? Remember I said before, why did the writer include this account? Uh, you know these these two accounts of the arrows and the the the, the bones uh, for us. I think that, that the comparison is this: we we have seen that yes, the dead the dead bones of Elijah was still capable of benefiting this dead man by raising him from the dead. And in contrast, when we see Jehoash, the king of Israel, going down to his own grave, his own grave, his life and his achievements ended with him there and then. We know that because in Second Kings 13 verse 12, this is what the writer of the Kings said concerning the life and achievement of, uh, you know, uh, King Jehoash of Israel. Verse 12 of Second Kings 13 say this, Now the rest of the acts of Joash, all that he did, and his might, which which, with which he fought against Amaziah, king of Judah, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? Oh, well, brethren, uh, the only memory of Jehoash's acts and great works were written down and stored away in some dusty royal archives, only to be occasionally visited for references purposes. That's all that uh, he, that's all that uh, you know that he he, he uh, Jehoash could show. But for Elisha, his works, his faith, his influence did not end with his death. Nor were they just simply written by the Holy Spirit in the Holy Scriptures later on for us. We, ha- we can see that even in his bones, Elisha's legacy continues to live. Even his bones could do something good to others after his body had been dis- has, been, has been decomposed. So here is a man of God whose legacy and service 
have con has, con have con has continued to exert his active influence and power on the living, even long after he was gone from this world. So here we can learn from uh, learn our second lesson, which is that we should live our lives of, for God like that, so that even after we are gone. The good that we have done will continue to live on in the lives of others for God's glory. So in the New Testament, we have seen you know, that the scriptures have repeatedly shown us and honored those who have left great legacies for others to emulate. In fact, that if, if you think about this, brethren, we, 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 are, we are here you know, as members of the lost church because of the fruit of someone's spiritual legacy. We are here because someone once saw the importance of preaching the gospel to the lost and converted another. We are here because a sinner who once saw the light of the gospel and obeyed the gospel became a Christian. We are here because that someone who was once blind but, they, but then they saw decided to bring the gospel to us. So we are the fruit of someone's spiritual legacy. These people may have passed from this world, but they have built and left behind a legacy for us. And we are the fruit of that legacy. So let us learn from this example and do the same for the lost, as well as for the brethren today, and leave behind godly impact and influence in our lives for them to follow for God's glory. I think this is the second lesson we can learn. The two lessons is basically that we should never see our life of service with a retirement timeline, but to serve God right to the very end. And that even when, we, and our, when our lives will come to an end, let us leave behind a legacy for others to follow for God's glory. So as I was thinking about these two lessons we have learned today, you know, I was, I was also wondering that why is it that all these faithful servants of God have borne the same hallmarks of lifelong service where they, they would serve God right to the very end of their lives. I was wondering why, why, why is this, this hallmark that was so common amongst the saints? I think this brings us to our third lesson. I think which is from, again from Elisha, which, is, which I see as the most important one that will provide us with the answers to our question. Why this common hallmark? All the faithful saints in the Bible have displayed the same characteristics of service because they saw themselves as the servants of the Lord. The servants of the Lord. But this was not just unique to the prophets and servants of God. Even Jesus himself has displayed the same characteristic of service and he has considered himself a servant Paul tells us this in Philippians 2 verses 5 to 8, where Paul said this, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bond servant, bond servant, and coming in the likeness of man. And having found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. So basically, the Apostle Paul tells us that Jesus, being deity, being divine, 
how that Jesus actually had divested himself, emptied himself, you know, of his divine nature and came as a man. And G Paul said that he came and served as a bond servant. The word bond servant is very interesting. It comes from the Greek word tulos. Uh, tulos means uh, a slave. Kenneth West, in his uh, in this Greek scholar, in in his in his uh, in his lexicon, he explains that a doulos is, I quote, is in your notes as well. You can see the quotation. It's the most abject, servile term used by the Greeks to denote a slave. The word designated one who has born, who was born as a slave, one who was bound to his master in courts so strong that only death, only death could break them. One who served his master to the disregard of his own interests. One whose will was swallowed up in the will of his master. And where it's continued that he said, Paul calls himself a born slave of Christ Jesus. The apostle is proud of the fact that he is a slave belonging to his Lord. There were others in other certain individuals in the Roman Empire designated slaves of the emperor. This was a position of honor. One finds a reflection of this in Paul's act of designating himself as a slave of the King of Kings. He puts ahead, this ahead of his apostleship. Unquote. So let, let, let's take a note here. Let's take note here that in the New Testament, okay, that you need to bear in mind this, there is a distinction, a difference between a hired servant, which you can find in Mark one twenty, and a slave. That's the difference between a hired servant and a slave. A hired servant, yeah, the hired servant's work was his job, okay? A hired servant's work was his job, for which, of course, he would be paid for. He had a salary, a wage for it. And also that he could quit if he was not happy with his job. On the other hand, a slave's work, according to Wells, the slave's work was his life, his life and duty, for which he owed it to his master. He owed this to his master. He owed it to his Lord, with his life, in fact, because he was either sold or he, he sold himself to his master to become his slave. You see, that Jesus has gave us a very good description as to one of the, one of the key aspects of the work of a slave. In, in New Testament times, in Luke 17, verses 7 to verse 10, that, that Jesus said this. He said that, Of which of you, having a servant, that's actually a slave in the Greek, plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he has come in from the field, Come at once and sit down and eat. But will he not rather say to him, Prepare something for my supper, and gird yourself and serve me till you, I have eaten and drunk, and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did the things that were commanded him? I think not. So likewise, you, when you have done all those things which you are commanded, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done what was our duty to do. Here, this, here we get an insight of what the Lord tells us about the, the, the work of slaves you know, in New Testament times. Sorry, just give me a second. I think I just kind of lock myself out sorry I, I hope that you have not missed it earlier uh, because I think that my computer has got locked out 
Yeah, so in Luke 17 here, we find the, you know, the Lord's Lord providing us with an insight of the work of a slave. Yes, the master, the master is not obliged to thank his slave, which of course today we will say that, oh wow, the master is very rude, not even a word of thanks. But uh, that, that was the nature, basically Jesus was not suggesting master should be like that, but he was just merely stating facts uh, that was prevailing in those days where masters would say that, well, just do this, do that, uh, without word of thanks. And, but what the Lord's focus was basically that, look at the slave, how the slave's reaction would be, you see? That yes, the master would expect the slave uh, to work with no thanks from him, but the slave's attitude towards his duty is that he performed them diligently and faithfully in service to his master. The reason is because the slave should have no expectations from his master. The reason is because that, that his master does not owe him anything but rather that the slave actually owed everything that he had to his master. And that's why that hence, as Wells has actually informed us, a slave's life was simply swallowed up in the will of his master. That's what the slave does. Which, in fact, the slave would consider that this his honor. This is his badge of honor to be, to be put in a position where he's, you know, he is swallowed up in the will of his master. And we see this great example of a slave in the life of, of Jesus himself. You know, just as well described for us about how a slave is consumed by the, by the will of his master. In John 4, for example, then John 4, uh, verse 34, Jesus said to them, this is what our Lord said, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. And then in John 6, 38, Jesus said that, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. And finally, in the high priestly prayer of Jesus in John 17, verse 4, that Jesus said, I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. So our Lord's uh, statement, statements here actually demonstrate his slave mindset. Like what Welsh has defined uh, a slave to be. You know, his mindset was to live to do God's will and to complete them. Not his own will, but God's will. And at the end of John 17, that uh, you know that uh, in in the Lord's prayer there, basically that Jesus said, well, he has completed what the, what the Father had sent him to do on the earth. Of course, what he was to do was to teach his disciples and the Jews about the Father, and his sonship, Jesus Christ Himself. So Jesus did not only simply talk, you know, that the, the the walk, but he walked the talk, as we we know from a lot of examples of how Jesus served. And one of the greatest example, greatest example of our Lord's service as a slave can be seen in John 13, which was the night when he was about to be betrayed uh, and then to be arrested and crucified later on. John 13 verse, verse, verse 12, verses 12 to 17, where Jesus said this, uh, the scripture says this, So when he had washed their feet, taken his garment and sat down again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, Well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I had done to you. Most assuredly I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than him who sent. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So Jesus clearly said in, in, that his example of humble service, which was actually doing the work of washing feet, 
washing the feet of the disciples, which was actually a slave's work. You see, in those days that the, the muddy and dusty roads without proper shoes like what we have today, you know, to protect their feet uh, would, would means that it would mean that uh, whoever entered the house uh, would be very, the feet would be very dusty and dirty or muddy. And as a result of that, their feet needed to be washed. And this was the job of a slave, where Jesus, the Lord and teacher, performed as an example to his disciples who were to follow after this example to take on the mindset of a slave and to become slaves of one another as, as followers of Jesus. Our Lord's duty was to do his Father's will. He said that I'm consumed with the will of my Father. My food is, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. And when he had finally discharged his, his, his duty as a, as a servant, as a slave, we, we hear it from his own mouth, the Lord's own mouth, as he uttered his final words with his final breath on the cross in John 19 verse 30. So when Jesus had finished the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. This is the great example from our Lord Jesus, the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings, with his slave mindset for us today. So brethren, the, 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 as we have seen that the Greek word doulos, you know, translated as servant, bond servant or slave in the New Testament, depicts, uh, you know, this, how a slave life was, was to be. It tells us that a slave's life was simply to be lived for his master and to do his will. Why? Because the slave's life belonged to his master and lord. In all things, it was his master who would come first, you know, and that his own will would be relegated to the bottom of the list. That's how a slave taught in those days and lived in those days. So Elisha's life and example as a servant, which is also a slave of the Lord, demonstrates this true attitude of how a slave should treat his master and Lord. So this biblical portrait of servitude is also the same for us as Christians today. Actually, we are actually slaves of Christ, our Lord and Master. I think that the Bible's translation of the word servant is not very helpful for the modern mind. I think slave would be a better word. So we need to be reminded of this biblical picture of who we are to the Lord. You know, once we understand who we are as slaves, that's as slaves to the Lord, it will help us to regulate our understanding of God's expectations of us and our responsibilities towards Him. So with the church today, where are the Lord's slaves? I think that one of the reasons that why that the, the Lord's church and brethren today have become weak spiritually is because of our failure to understand what it means to be a slave of Christ. You know, which all Christians are. We are all slaves of Christ. We will see from the, from the New Testament. That's what the Bible says. I, I, I see that uh, one of the very early issues that caused this problem of the weakness of the church uh, may have been due to the, our lack of understanding amongst brethren as to the duties of a slave of Christ. And this is basically that, uh, you know, being reflected in the way we preach the gospel to the lost as well. In, in, in the recent uh, years, I have actually noticed that uh, brethren have actually adopted this denominational concept. Uh, you know, when, we, when, when, we, uh, when, when brethren go about evangelizing the lost, 
uh, this concept of accepting or receiving Christ as your personal savior. So I want I want to uh, you know visit this point and 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 look at it. You know that brethren have used this denominational concept, accepting or receiving Christ as your personal savior, in order to encourage people to embrace the gospel. I think that this is where the problem comes. Let's consider this concept. Yeah, accepting Christ or, re- or receiving Christ. So the idea. If you think about this, uh, accepting and receiving Christ, the idea that a sinner is to accept or receive Christ to be saved seems to imply that the sinner is in a superior position. Okay? It seems to imply that. You know, that you are the one receiving. You are the one accepting. That seems to imply that you are in the superior position. Let me explain why. If you look at the Bible itself, how the Bible looks at this concept of accepting and receiving. Uh, Esther 5. In Esther 5 verses 1 to 2, uh, the story of Esther there, this is what the scripture says. Now it happened on the third day that Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace, across from the king's house, while the king sat on his royal throne in the royal house, facing the entrance of the house. So it was, when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, that she found favor in his sight, the king held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther went near and touched the scepter, the top of the scepter. So in this story, basically, that uh, is, is an illustration of uh, the customs of um, you know the kings. Uh, you just don't walk into the palace like you walk into, into uh, you know Morrison or Tesco as and when you like. Uh, Esther, although she was queen, uh, in a very uh, royally and you know a highly high status uh, in terms of royalty wise, even the queen, she had to wait. For the king to accept and receive her, she had to she had to stand outside and wait. The reason is because she was inferior to the queen, to the king. The king was the superior, so it was down to the king to decide whether to accept and receive the queen. You see, so we see we see this example of the difference in the social status when it comes to the notion of accepting and receiving. So when we use the expression receive. Or accept Christ. This seemed to turn biblical teaching of serv- servanthood on, uh, and, and the lordship of Jesus Christ on its head. You know that uh, it, it, it's it's weird. It's a weird concept to, to suggest that we are to receive Christ and accept Christ, uh, because this is not how the Bible teaches in terms of whether it's conversion or whether it is uh, you know uh, Christian living. Let, let let me explain you why. If you look at Acts 17, verse 30, a passage that is well known to many, many, many brethren. Acts 17, 30, that the apostle Paul said to the Athenian pagans this. He said that, Truly the times, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. So we need to understand, first of all, that in the process of evangelism, you know, as well as Christian living as well, we are looking at evangelism-wise, that the scripture tells us that it is God who commands all men to repent. Repentance is a command, which is one of the cause of the gospel. When we preach the gospel, we preach repentance. But some, sometimes we, we, we do not emphasize at the point that the, 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 the need to repent is a command from God. A command implies something coming from a superior to an inferior. Okay, so bear that in mind. But it's not only repentance has been commanded. 
And uh, secondly, the New Testament also teaches that baptism is also commanded. And in Acts 10, uh, verses 47 to 48, uh, this is the case of the conversion of Cornelius the Gentile. Uh, verse 47, Acts 10 says this, can Peter say that can anyone forbid water that this should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. Then they asked him to stay a few days. Baptism is commanded. And then even the, in the words of Ananias to, uh, not the Ananias who, who, who cheated uh, uh, the Lord. This is Ananias uh, when he spoke to Saul of Tarsus. Acts 22 verse 16 where he said that, And now why are you waiting? Speaking to Saul of Tarsus. Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. So this is also the, 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 it, the, the, the words arise and be baptized were imperatives, commands as well. So when we look at the words of Peter to Cornelius and Ananias to the Saul, to Saul of Tarsus to, to, uh, concerning baptism, the scripture tells us that both of these were commands to be baptized. So from these passages, they, they, go, they, they just show us that once a sinner is convinced by the gospel and believes that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the scripture says that such a one should be commanded to repent and be baptized, which are preconditions to forgiveness of sins in conversion. Such preconditions must be obeyed. So what does it mean? It means basically that the sinner does not accept or receive. The sinner submit to and obey Christ in order to be saved. That's how the gospel should be preached. So, the, But the, the notion of submission and obedience is just not simply coming from these passages. It actually agrees with what Paul has described for us concerning our responsibility in conversion to Christ. Romans 6 is a good example of it, but Paul is very specific about this. If you notice that, you see, he was very, very explicit and specific. Romans 6, verses 16 to 17. Now Paul said this. This was in the context of baptism. He said that, Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one's slave whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? But God be thanked that you, you, though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. So here Paul tells us that uh, two spiritual facts. Number one, pre-conversion. Before we were converted to Christ, Paul said that we were slaves to sin. And secondly, post-conversion. After we become Christians, we are slaves to God. So what this implies is that there is no middle spiritual status ground in between. There's nothing in between. You see? You are either a slave to sin or a slave to righteousness. And Jesus affirmed that in Matthew 6, 24, where he said that no man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Well, brethren, since the spiritual reality is that on either side of the spiritual realm, we, we remain slaves. As slaves, as we know what the Bible tells us, as slaves, our duty is to obey and submit, either to sin, as slaves of sin or to God as slaves of righteousness. So what it means is basically this. In the process of conversion, the sinner was simply 
changing from being a slave to sin onto a slave of righteousness. You see? So you 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 don't you don't become someone in the in the middle. You are a slave from one end to the other. So this uh, it is this point I think that we, we need to be more precise and clear when we preach the gospel uh, to the lost. Lost sinners must understand that they are coming to Christ as slaves of sin and emerge from the waters of baptism as slave to Christ. You know that I think that this is something that we, we, we need to preach as the way the Bible has, has actually you know shown us how the gospel is to be preached. In First Corinthians 7, that this is what Paul said. Paul said in verse 20, 22 of First Corinthians 7, he said that for he who is called in the Lord while a slave you're talking about physical slave, is the Lord's freeman. Spiritually, he's free. Likewise, he who is called while free is Christ's slave. A freedman who is, in those days, basically those who were freed from slavery, well, you may be socially a free, free person, but you are Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of men. So this is what Paul is basically saying, that the spiritual reality is that we are slaves no matter how we look at it. If we are we are sinners, we are slaves to sin. If we are faithful and, and, and safe, we are slaves to Christ. There is no middle ground. The, the Bible is very clear. So young Christians and the church must be taught this slave concept, which is very unpopular today because we know that with, 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 the, with the cancer culture, with the leftists, you know, that uh, they are trying to, uh, you know, uh, you know, say that slavery, the history of slavery is, is bad and evil and, you know, it's not a very politically popular uh, subject to, to, to talk about, let alone, you know, uh, encourage brethren to think like slaves. Uh, but basically, this is what the Bible tells us. We are all slaves to Christ and we should be taught the duties and responsibilities of slaves according to biblical teaching. So brethren must be taught from day one and as long as we live that as slaves of Christ, we are totally owned by Jesus. We are no longer of our own. First Corinthians 6.20 As slaves of Christ, our only reason for living is to live for Christ the Lord and for no other reason. Galatians 2.20 As slaves of Christ, we have voluntarily given up our personal rights. Romans 6, Romans 6 we have seen. Uh, verse 16 As slaves of Christ, we are to be at our master's disposal 24-7. The lives of all these great servants and slaves of God shows that. And as slaves of Christ, we are completely subservient to our master's will. The words of Jesus show that. That he food is to do the will of him who sent him. We are slaves of Christ. Slaves of Christ, brethren, because we have been bought with the precious blood of Christ. We have received salvation and forgiveness of sin, not because we have accepted Christ, but because we have obeyed him as our Lord who has granted us salvation and forgiveness of sin when we obey and submit to his command to repent and be baptized. Jesus is our Lord and we have called him our Lord because why? Because we are his slaves. It's as simple as that. So since this is the case, then we must act and live and think like slaves do. And this is precisely what the word Lord means. You see, a master. So the biblical concept runs contrary to the denominational concept of accepting and receiving Christ because, well, uh, the Bible doesn't teach, you know, that uh, this is how a sinner should respond to the gospel by receiving and accepting Christ. But instead, the Bible teaches that the sinner respond by 
obeying and submitting as slaves, from slaves of sin to slaves of righteousness. So that's, I hope that here we, 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 can, we are clarified from the believer position that the, the notion of accepting and receiving Christ is not biblical. What about a personal saviour? Receiving and accepting Christ as your personal saviour. This is another denominational concept, uh, you know, that uh, the, the personal saviour concept that creates problems in the church. The notion of a personal saviour implies that Jesus is my exclusive saviour. That's why it's called personal. What's the problem with this concept? What's the problem with a personal saviour concept? Acts 20, verse 28, the Bible tells us this. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, the church of God which He purchased with His own blood. Okay, bear in mind this. Christ purchased with His own blood the church of God. And then Paul writes in Ephesians 5, 23-25, said this. For the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church, and He is the Savior of the body. He is the Savior of the of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. So Paul here, you know, teaches us two important concepts. That is Christ's death and sacrifice is for the church, the body, his saints who are in Christ. He purchased the church with his own blood. It does not teach the notion of a personal savior. Christ did not sacrifice personally for one person. He sacrificed for the church. So when we submit ourselves and obey the gospel as slaves, we become slaves of righteousness being added to the church by baptism and repentance. We, you know, this is how we are safe. You know, in a, in a sense, he saved us to the church when we obey Him. Well, um, if there is any passage that talks about a personal saviour, uh, there, there, there are, uh, which I'd like to share with you, but it doesn't teach the concept of an exclusive saviour, in that sense. Uh, the closest one you can find of referring Jesus as a personal saviour is where Paul was speaking of himself being the chief of sinners in First Timothy 1. You know that Paul said that as the chief of sinner, how Jesus has granted him mercy and making him an apostle. First Timothy 1 verses 12 down to 16, where Paul said this. He said that, I thank Christ our Lord, uh, Christ Jesus our Lord, who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. This is the faithful saying, and worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. For, however, for this reason I obtained mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show all long-suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. Yes, uh, there, there seems to be an indication that Paul was saying that, well, he was a chief of sinners, that Christ came to the world to, you know, to save sinners of whom I'm chief. He seemed to imply that, yes, Jesus was his personal saviour. But actually, when you read the passage itself, the passage does not speak of Paul saying that Jesus was his personal saviour, but rather of Paul being 
his personal slave. That's what he was basically, Paul was basically saying, that Christ died for me and I'm his personal slave. You know, how, how was he his personal slave? Is in the way that thereafter, he said that in verse 16, for this reason I obtained mercy, that in me first Christ Jesus might show all long suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. That Christ died for me and I'm his personal slave. He's not talking about his personal slave, I'm his personal slave. Because my duty and service is for, for him by living a life of long suffering to encourage others to be faithful like, like him. You see? So Paul saw the personal salvation as appointed to his personal slavehood, not the other way around. And again, another passage that talks about a personal savior in a sense was Galatians 2.20, where Paul said that I have been crucified with Christ, it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So here again it seems that Paul is talking about Jesus being his personal savior. But it's not the case if you if you look at the context, because Paul again that he was saying that yes, Christ died for me, but I'm his personal slave. But how do we know that? Because in Galatians 1, verse 10, that Paul said this. He said, For do I now persuade men or God, or do I seek to please men? For if I still please men, I would not be a bond servant. The word slave is there, a bond servant of Christ. So from these passages, we we find that when the New Testament refers to a personalized salvation secured by Jesus, the Apostle Paul and the but in the New Testament does not see the Lord as being one's personal savior. But instead, was that that personalized salvation would lead to the one thinking and see himself as the Lord's personal slave. So the New Testament teaching on the Lord's sacrifice is actually the, the very direct opposite to the denominational concept of a personal savior, personal savior for very good reasons. Because the New Testament does not talk about exclusive salvation. It talks about salvation for all that's found in the church, where in the church, everyone is a slave to Christ. You see, this is where the main problem with the denomination concept of a personal salva- saviour, uh, you know, uh, has created in the church that makes the Lord's church weak. It's because that the concept of the personal salvation makes Christianity a very personalised rela- religion, as if that Jesus has especially spe- spe- died just for one person. That's why it's called the personal saviour. It creates that, that impression. And this is where that it has created this me and my God mindset. The me and my God mindset is actually essentially a selfish mentality. Well, you know that uh, I, I, I know from personal experience, from, you know, from amongst brethren, I'm talking about brethren in the church, who have this me and my God mindset, which I see as the fruit of the sort of denominational teaching. You know, they, they, uh, I, I, have, I have brethren said to me before that, well, my faith is personal to me. It's between me and my God. And whatever is happening into the church, yeah, or in the church, is none of my business. Because I'm here to worship my God on Sundays. So don't tell me about the problems of the church, nothing to do with me. So this is the kind of fruit that, you know, I, I can see that the, the, the idea of receiving, accepting Christ as a personal Savior has born. Uh, within the Lord's church with selfish brethren 
who seem to think that uh, you know Jesus died for them because Jesus was their personal savior and it breeds selfish individuals and this is something that we must move away from these dangerous false concepts and embrace the New Testament teaching of the slavehood of Christians as slaves of righteousness as slaves of God and of Christ so if brethren were to understand where we stand in relation to Jesus Christ as per the New Testament teaching and be properly taught of our responsibilities and duties as the Lord's slaves brethren I tell you this that the church would be very different that's why we see in the New Testament the New Testament church was very different from from how, how, how we behave today if sinners are taught from the from the beginning from day one that it is not for them to receive or accept Christ as their personal Savior but it is for them to obey and submit to God to become personally his slaves and to adopt the biblical mindset of servitude I tell you brethren that the church will be filled with brethren with this slave-like attitude when it comes to performing you know, the, 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 the works of the church brethren would, would all be climbing one over one another volunteering to do the work why because we would see ourselves as performing faithful and unfailing service to God for his glory so once we understand that we are not just Christians by definition meaning followers of Christ but more importantly that we are also slaves of Christ we will we will become like the apostles and the early Christians and the church will have more willing servants offering service to God and service to one another for God's glory the world you know denigrates uh, slaves you know uh, slavehood because that uh, you know it, gives, it paints a very negative picture of, uh, of, of, of those who are slaves but Jesus paints a very different picture when it comes to being slaves of God in Luke 22 Jesus tells us that in fact being a slave to God is a status of greatness not grossness but state greatness uh, Luke 20, 22 verses 24 to 27 see what Jesus said Jesus said that now that the scripture said now there was it also a dispute among them as to which of them should be considered the greatest again you know this was in the context of the Last Supper remember Jesus just washed their feet yeah or maybe this happened before Jesus washed their feet but you know that this this was this was an argument there who was going to be greatest in the kingdom of in the kingdom of God so verse 25 Luke 22 continues he said and he said to them the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them and those who exercise, uh, exercise authority over them are called benefactors but not so among you notice that yeah on the contrary he who is greatest among you let him be as the younger and he who governs as he who serves for who is greater he who sits at the table or he who serves is it not he who sits at the table yet I am among you as the one who serves remember the washing of the feet you call me teacher and Lord so I am Jesus said in John in the John, John's account eh? but he served like a slave the world sees slavery as derogatory but the New Testament said well there's nothing derogatory embarrassing or shameful about being slave to Christ because a slave of the most high God is actually one of the most privileged noblest profession in the world all the great and noble men and women of God 
in the Bible have always been called slaves of God. Jesus has said that if you want to be great in God's kingdom, let us be slaves of our Lord and of one another. Let us be resolved, brethren, as I close here, be resolved in our minds to serve God voluntarily, serve God gladly, serve Him faithfully, and to serve Him for as long as we live as His slaves. Brethren, if we want this congregation to grow in the Lord, we must never adopt the I, me, myself mindset, but put on the mind of Christ as slaves of God, living only for God's glory, serving in humility, and always seeking to do the will of the Father who is in heaven. Let us try to leave behind a great legacy for others, a great legacy for others, like all faithful saints of old and Elijah have done, a legacy of servitude towards Christ and of one another in this great body of Christ for His glory and His honour. May God be blessed and be honoured as we take this lesson to heart. Amen. Mm-hmm.